Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the McGill Journal of Law and Health's podcast. In November 2021, Newfoundland and Labrador suffered a ransomware attack on their healthcare system. Some cybersecurity experts are calling this the worst attack in Canadian history. The cyber attack shut down the province's healthcare system for days and delayed thousands of appointments and procedures. The attack also compromised the health information of people across the province and even the social insurance numbers of employees. Healthcare systems and hospitals are often the target of malicious or criminal hackers because of the devastating impacts that disruptions and the loss of data can have on the health of real people. Today, to discuss the implications of cyber attacks and what governments and people can do to better protect their information is Yuan Stevens. Yuan is a legal and policy expert focused on information integrity, data protection, and human rights. She is currently a policy lead on technology, cybersecurity, and democracy at the Ryerson Leadership Lab, a research affiliate at the Data and Society Research Institute, and a collaborator at the Center for Media Technology and Democracy. On top of all that, Yuan is also a graduate of McGill's Faculty of Law, and she previously worked at Harvard University's Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society. So to start us off, 2021 and 2020 have been interesting years, to say the least. And one of the main concerns that have been arising has been concerns with respect to cybersecurity. So can you start by telling us a little bit about some of the concerns that have arisen over the past couple of years? So my work and and reporting of others has shown that COVID-19 has definitely highlighted and exacerbated long-standing weaknesses in how critical institutions, including healthcare and medical research facilities, manage the privacy and security of the information that they manage. In other words, it's become obvious more than ever that people's highly sensitive data can be accessed and stolen at healthcare institutions across Canada. In a report by Global News just today, they show that there's numerous attacks that have occurred, particularly on healthcare institutions that we need to sort of Uh, be aware of. For example, in June 2021, Toronto's Humber River Hospital had to stop providing many of its essential services after it faced a ransomware attack. And then in October the same year, so 2021, Newfoundland and Labrador's entire provincial health network data center also faced a ransomware attack. And this resulted in the delay of thousands of appointments across the province. More than this, the attackers accessed the basic emitting information of hospital patients, as well as employee information going back to, 20, to, to 14 years at some points. And the attackers took patients' names, detailed contact information, their parents' names, birth dates, and marital statuses, and they even took employers' social insurance numbers. The last thing that uh, I want to highlight as well is that in November 2021, so just a month ago at the time of recording this, Headwaters Healthcare Center in Orangeville, Ontario, where I spent a part of my childhood, also announced that there had been an unauthorized access of its systems. Um, so, you know, uh, the lessons we can draw from this are that COVID-19 is definitely augmenting and highlighting uh, the weaknesses and the sort of failure to address cybersecurity on the part of these institutions and cybersecurity needs to be taken more seriously. All of this is really concerning. You know, we hear that there are um, people's health data being taken, people's SIN numbers being taken. And this raises questions about what are the tangible impacts that these people, either patients or employees, should be concerned about? Yeah, so cybersecurity should be scary, but it should also be not scary. I think that I would like for institutions and organizations to take cybersecurity seriously and I think it's it's on them and and 
not so much on the average person to to take this seriously, um, but it's also helpful for us to know the impacts of this because we can take part in advocating for that change. So in the case of hospitals and healthcare institutions, the, the effects of, of cyber attacks and ransomware attacks are really obvious and painful and, and you know, worth being afraid of in some ways because when people's healthcare is impacted, that means they won't get the treatment that they need. Or in the case of health information being accessed, then the really sensitive information can be at risk. Here in Quebec, we do have this Carnet Santé system where you can access all of your data, or at least a lot of the data that the government has on you in terms of, you know, scans that you've done and doctor's visits. And then you can actually see who's accessed your information. You can see which healthcare professionals have accessed that information. As a cybersecurity expert, though, what frightens me in some ways about the system, as useful as it is, is that it provides a huge attack service, as we say in cybersecurity. And that means that, you know, if all these institutions can have access to this data, and if that data isn't segregated, which was the case in Newfoundland, you know, the data at, at issue wasn't segregated, separated and carefully sort of put in silos so that it could be you know, so there was a smaller attack surface. What we have here in Quebec is, is something that's very susceptible to being attacked. And then people can see your x-rays, they can see your scans, they can see your ultrasounds, they can see the medication you've been prescribed. And if attackers have access to that information, then you, you, you would feel really um, violated in terms of privacy. And then and when it comes to access to things like your social insurance number, identity theft and identity fraud is a huge issue as well. So we as individuals who are affected by these need to be aware of these concerns, but my hope is that organizations and institutions and governments also take this very seriously because it's really them, the onus is on them to protect us as individuals. You mentioned that it's on governments to take measures to protect us as individuals. What legal measures are in place right now that exist to protect individuals? And do you think that these are sufficient um, in light of the, seems like the increasing number of cyber attacks? I think that's a great question. And I've done some research on this. I think there needs to be more expertise and research on this, especially that is available to the public. But there's a great summary by Lindsay Wasser and Kristen, Kristen Pennington, who are two lawyers at Macmillan, um, who have summarized Canada's cybersecurity laws. There's this uh, repository of information on laws around the world. And and there's a summary of cybersecurity laws for all the countries as well. So they've done a really great job of summarizing that already for us, and it is publicly available. And I want to summarize aspects of that for listeners here. What Wasser and Pennington's work shows us is that data protection laws are patchwork here in Canada, and I would argue largely incomplete in the face of the risks of these cyber attacks. So we have you know, a federal, private, and public sector privacy law, uh, that requires a protection of information and affords certain rights in certain contexts to certain people. Given that healthcare is a matter of provincial jurisdiction, that means that this federal privacy law isn't going to ensure certain requirements in the healthcare sector per se. One of the most promising things in this pr federal private sector law, though, is that PIPIDA, so the Personal Information Protection and Electronic Documents Act, requires that individuals be notified of any breach of security safeguards involving their personal information under the organization's control as soon as it's feasible. The problem with this law, as mentioned, though, is that it really doesn't apply to hospitals or healthcare institutions, in part because it applies to commercial activity solely, and it applies in terms of jurisdiction only when information travels across provincial borders, again, when commercial activity is involved, and if provinces don't have their own similar private sector pr privacy legislation. 
But sadly, there is no data breach notification requirements for the healthcare sector across Canada, with two exceptions being Quebec's Bill 64, which applies to both the private and public sector and introduces unique cyber, cyber incident reporting obligations. And then there's Alberta's Personal Information Protection Act. But with, with all this said, we have general requirements to protect the, you know, the privacy of your personal information, but there aren't requirements really to secure the cybersecurity that, though of course those are th those things are interrelated. Um, there aren't requirements to set, you know, there are general requirements to protect that, but the specificity isn't there. And then those data breach notification requirements really only exist at PIPIDA and in two um, provincial laws, which means that there are numerous provinces that don't have adequate laws in this regard. So while it sounds like PIPIDA is promising, given the fact that there are lots of gaps within the federal and provincial legislative frameworks, as well as the immense complexity of cybersecurity, is this framework sufficient to ensure that the data of both patients and employees is protected within this framework? Or are there other steps that experts believe that the governments need to take? Yeah, so there's this notion in cybersecurity of layers of security. And I think an approach like that is needed in Canada. So privacy law is one layer of security and defense in in protecting this, the safety of our information, because it really comes down to the, the safety and the integrity of that information. So in the US, you have uh, an agency that's been established, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, which is fantastic. And in a way, we have a sort of equivalent to that, the Canadian Center for Cybersecurity, which is part of our spy agency, the Communications Security Establishment. But this agency of the US is, you could argue, is one, you know, one other layer of security that I would argue is needed in, Quebec, in Canada. And I say that because it, you know, is not, it's its own agency. It exists purely to ensure and to maintain and to provide standards regarding cybersecurity for institutions across the US, both um, in terms of the government and also they inform the work of the private sector as well. And we don't have that same kind of agency which exists out, outside of another agency that has very particular interests and that could be seen as coloring the work of the cybersecurity agency. But what we need in Canada is an agency that is independent, I, I think, and, and exists only for cybersecurity and provides those standards and works with the public in a way that's more transparent and much more active and even potentially you know, enacts laws as has happened. For example, in the US, um, there, there was a really interesting policy solution called the Binding Operational Directive. It's contentious in some ways, but what this law or policy does is it requires all federal agencies to have a vulnerability disclosure program. What that means is that this program or policy would invite, actively invite and set out a process for good intentioned hackers who find vulnerabilities in their systems to disclose those vulnerabilities. Right now, the Canadian Center for Cybersecurity and the Treasury Board Secretariat appear to be interested in instituting some sort of federal agency-wide mandate to allow the disclosure of vulnerabilities. But there is no active uh, and obvious legislation and efforts to require federal agencies to work with hackers and allow the disclosure of those vulnerabilities. And I want to tell you a story, actually, that makes obvious and clear why this matters. So we, you might remember WannaCry, and that happened in May 2017. And then this, this ransomware, WannaCry, impacted 200,000 computers across the world that were run by hospitals and banks. 
And it's estimated that the losses related to WannaCry amounted to 4 billion USD worldwide. But what happened was the National Security Agency, US's spy agency, um, decided to, you know, has a branch of its own work that finds security vulnerabilities in high impact software and systems around the world. And vulnerabilities are conditions or protocols that are configured in such a way that they can be exploited for attacks. They can look like things like errors in computer code, features in software design that can be used in in ways unintended by the designer. And vulnerabilities can also exist at the system level. You know, you fail to install an updated version of software or an operating system. So the National Security Agency found a vulnerability in an old version of Windows that allowed remote control and, and uh, the running of code on a computer. So it's almost like you're driving, you're using a, your computer, and someone takes control of it without you even knowing or without you controlling that. It's pretty scary. So many, many computers had not updated and, and rolled out a patch that you know Windows and Microsoft rolled out in um, early 2017. And the National Security Agency held on to this vulnerability and created an exploit. They created a essentially like a piece of software that could take advantage of that vulnerability and pilfer information and, and, and access information without people's knowledge or control. The problem was a Chinese hacking group is you know, alleged to have found that, that exploit, Eternal Blue, waged tanks on, and waged attacks on banks. You know, NSA finally decided to tell Microsoft about the vulnerability in 2017, and Microsoft issued the patch not long, not long after. But what happened was many computers, at least 200,000 across the world, were either you know, using software and versions of um, well, operating systems that were outdated and could not even be updated, or they, were, you know, they hadn't patched their systems, they hadn't installed those updates. So the people who developed WannaCry ultimately used that exploit, which was developed by the National Security Agency, to attack those 200,000 computers. And that's because those people, you know, they weren't using the latest version of Microsoft and and their and and you know Windows. And uh, this teaches us so many things. But one of the things we can learn about it is that it's really important to work with hackers, good intention hackers to disclose those vulnerabilities because WannaCry shows us the risks when those vulnerabilities remain latent and undiscovered and, and exploited by good, seemingly good and seemingly bad actors. And it's really important as well to update your software and systems. Yes, that is definitely a lesson I will be taking away from that. I am guilty of constantly not updating my software, but I will, will start doing that more often. Would highly sure. recommend, yeah. With respect to um, this example, the the vulnerability disclosures, how do you think that would either mitigate or prevent certain things like the attacks we've seen at uh, a hospital in Toronto and in Newfoundland? Would that enable health systems to be better prepared for these attacks? Yeah, so that's a good question. I think it's not clear for now how the people were able to get access to many of these systems. And when governments are more transparent about that in a measured way, and of course, assessing the risks, then that transparency allows us to know whether, you know, basically how that thing could have been mitigated, how that attack could have been mitigated. I think given that cybersecurity is about layers of defense and layers of security, you know, when you talk to hackers, and I've talked to many hackers um, for various studies I've done, and I focus on vulnerability disclosure as well in my work, Hackers will, will say, you know, it's really important to, to enable them to disclose vulnerabilities because they know that they'll find them 
And if they don't have um, a process for doing that, they'll be discouraged from doing that. And it's what we call um, as well a sort of wicked problem, because if you don't have a way for hackers to disclose vulnerabilities, then you'll be you know, weak and vulnerable to attack. And then you might feel better because you don't know about the vulnerabilities that can be disclosed to you. Um, and that's what Bruce Shire, a cybersecurity expert calls, or and, and many others have called uh, security by or through obscurity. And on the flip side, if you work with hackers to disclose vulnerabilities, who want to disclose vulnerabilities, that is, then you know you have a ton of information that might be coming in. You have patch reports you want to roll out. You have and patches and updates, that is. And you'll have a lot of work and you'll need to build up your team and you need to have a sort of very mature stance and posture towards cybersecurity to work with hackers in that way and to receive external bug reports because bug reports and, and vulnerability reports do occur internally. But with that said, it's another layer of defense that I think is worth implementing. And what happened in the US context is that the private sector really led the way with that. And in no small part, because hackers said they wanted to disclose vulnerabilities, they wanted to get paid. And then there was a sort of disruption, so to speak, at the federal government level, when a certain hack occurred, an attack occurred, it was involved the Office of the Personnel Management and millions of US people's information was accessed and stolen. Um, And that's because the Office of Personnel Management was essentially the HR office, but for the US federal government and included information for all their federal employees and a lot of their relatives and their loved ones. And because of the significance of that attack, the government and the U.S. decided they were going to do whatever they could to prevent future attacks like that from happening. And that's when the Department of Defense decided to roll out its bug bounty program, its vulnerability disclosure program, where they paid people to invite people to disclose vulnerabilities because they knew that they had to do everything that they could to prevent such a significant a significant attack from occurring again. With that said, it's not clear that you know a vulnerability disclosure program is going to solve the problems and prevent ransomware attacks in the future, but it will certainly serve as one layer of defense that I think organizations, particularly when critical infrastructure and healthcare systems are involved, that should be used in order to protect people's information. It certainly sounds like we have a long way to go to address these gaps in the Canadian legal framework. Do you have anything to share with our listeners who may want to become involved in helping to prevent future cyber attacks? but don't know where to begin? There's a way to think about cybersecurity and that doesn't consider it as an end goal, but considers it a process. And I think I'd like to remind listeners that cybersecurity is definitely a process and it's something that you'll always be working for, but you'll never achieve. I also want to say that I would really hope for more Canadian lawyers and people in the legal community to be interested in cybersecurity because it seems daunting and it seems scary, but it's a really interesting area of the law because what you're dealing with is things like privacy law and fiduciary obligations, which I, you know, we didn't go into detail today about, but you're dealing with some of the most high impact kinds of legal work and, and cases um, affecting people across Canada to today, and there are not enough of us, I think. And there are, you know, there's a growing workforce. There's law firms are specializing this, but I also think we need people who, who specialize in cybersecurity, but from a public interest perspective. So maybe who who want to work to help nonprofits, for example, and and not just large companies. Though of course that's really important work too. So I just want to encourage people to consider it a process and to to enter the field and to and to specialize in this because we need more people who do that in Canada. And there you have it. 
The cyber attack on Newfoundland and Labrador's healthcare system illuminated many issues identified by UN here today. Clearly, different levels of government have to work together to overcome gaps in privacy and cybersecurity legislative frameworks to better protect health systems and people across Canada and to identify vulnerabilities before they are too late. Given the disproportionate risk borne by hospitals and healthcare systems, this is clearly an area that demands further attention by health policy experts, lawyers, law students, and government alike. Thank you for joining us and talk to you next time on the McGill Journal of Law and Health's podcast. Mm -hmm.